No one would have believed in the beginning of the 21st century that this world was to be taken over by psychopathic liars and murderers. Not many had heard of the word ponderology or pathocracy. Man's vanity, ignorance, greed and selfishness had led him to the end of days. The end of days that had been carefully and secretly planned a long time ago. Some who did have some idea that all was not as it should be, scrambled frantically for truthful information in cyberspace on the world wide web, the internet. But alas, the powers that be had known in advance that this would happen, and had beforehand set up sites that would trap these truth seekers. Sites full of disinformation, little bits of truth as bait on the outside, but containing nothing but lies, manipulation, and filth within. But one new site did shine a light brightly in those dark days. Radio Free, Signs of the Times, broadcasting into the heart of occupied America. You're listening to Signs of the Times podcast. This week we're going to continue our discussion, uh, part three of our discussion, with Laura Knight-Yadzik. Last week we discussed reincarnation. Uh, this week we're going to continue with our discussion into the Cassiopeian Experiment. I would just like to say that since today's podcast is the third of a three-part series in which we'll be building on uh, the information that was discussed in the previous two podcasts, it's probably advisable that people who haven't already listened to the previous two podcasts to do so. Yes, thank you, Joe. This week we're going to change direction just a little bit. We've talked about uh, some of my early experiences with hypnosis We've talked about uh, reincarnation, past life therapy. Last week we talked about the case where my son identified a past life as a pilot in Vietnam and how that played out in the real world with um, some concrete evidence being found that it was possibly true or true with a certain degree of probability. You can't assign any kind of certainty to these things, Um and that's always the problem that we face. For example, even with my experiences over these many years doing many, many past life regression sessions with individuals, with my personal experience with my son, with my experience of my own life where I have compelling memories of previous lifetimes, I still can't say with any absolute certainty that I, quote, believe, unquote, in reincarnation. There's always the possibility that even the most compelling evidence can be a, a um, fluke. It can be self-deception. There are lots of theories that uh, supposedly explain these things. Most of them are a lot more ridiculous than just saying reincarnation is a real probability. But in any event, 
At this point, I want to talk a little bit about how this work led me to the to the experiment that resulted in the Cassiopeian transmissions. Now, the first thing I want to say about uh, how this how these experiences led me there is that during all of these years, while I was doing this kind of work and also having a a life uh, along other lines, you know, as in uh, having children, raising children, keeping house, cooking, you know, doing the normal things that everybody does. I was also reading because with each case, each situation, there was a whole field of of investigation that needed to be undertaken in order to either A, validate, or to, you know, find some other way or means of, of, of assisting the person. Whenever somebody presented themselves to me with a particular type of problem, I would always start digging into the research, into the available material to try to find out if anybody else had encountered this situation, and if so, what had they done? Now, the work that I cited before, Spirit Release Therapy by Bill Baldwin, came along in the 80s, early 90s. And I read this material with great interest. There were many things that I considered to be very close to what I had observed and experienced myself, but there were some other things that I didn't agree with because I had made observations and it had experiences that contradicted them. It didn't mean that they, that what Baldwin was saying wasn't true or wasn't what he had experienced. I'm just saying that there were other observations and other experiences that suggested that some of the answers that he offered uh, may not have been as cut and dried as, as he wanted to think they were. So I started doing this this work with spirit release therapy in, in a more, shall we say, regular way. In other words, it, it, it was being done more and more often frequently i would i would not explain to the client anything about the technique i would just say i want to try a particular technique with you is is this okay now i think i should probably talk a little bit about dissociation before we even get into explaining the technique because dissociation is is a term that describes certain states of consciousness including hypnosis Dissociation is pretty much what it sounds like. It's being dissociated from a sharp self-awareness of your environment. Everybody dissociates to one extent or another at one time or another, usually many times a day. When you're dissociated, you are not present in yourself. Yeah, For me, the uh, a very good example of, of, of what you're talking about is... Um an experience that I've had on a, on a number of occasions and, and I think uh, probably quite a lot of other people have also uh, and it's when you're driving a car, for example, for brief periods or, or perhaps one brief period throughout the journey, you'll kind of come to yourself and realise that the last, you know, kind of minute or half mile or mile uh, that you've actually travelled, you had no awareness of your surroundings uh, throughout that time that you were off daydreaming somewhere else but that somehow you were able to navigate uh, in the car and, and, and uh, you know, drive normally without actually being, as you say, present. That's, that's uh, exactly so. Uh, 
And the same thing is true with, you know, for example, daydreaming when you're, you know, gazing out the window and and you more or less lose track of yourself, lose track of time, and, and suddenly you come back to yourself and you realize that you've been sitting there gazing out the window or maybe somebody says to you a penny for your thoughts and you suddenly come back to a more immediate awareness and you realize that for a number of minutes or longer you have not been present in yourself and there are other examples for example Martha Stout gives one in her book The Myth of Sanity of going to the movies Uh, you go to the movies and you sit there and you become very involved in, in the movie itself and you identify with one or another of the characters or with each of them in turn And while they are performing the action that you're seeing in front of your eyes, you are more or less in the movie with them. You uh, feel your heart pounding when they are being chased by the villains, or you, you feel their shock and horror when they suddenly realize that they've been betrayed. You go through all kinds of, of emotional twists and turns, with the people or the in, or a specific individual in the movie, and while you're doing this, you're simply not present in yourself. You may be eating popcorn, drinking a, a soft drink, uh, holding you know, the hand of, of someone who's gone to the movie with you, or they're sitting beside you, and you may squeeze their hand or, or cause them some pain or or even slap your knee if you're upset or or tense up and, and do all kinds of things in response to the movie none of which has anything to do with your immediate awareness of your real, particular, actual environment. You are dissociated. Uh, Many people dissociate frequently while they're watching television. Uh, So naturally, the the habit of dissociation among people who watch television can, can become very strong. There is another way of dissociating, and that's dissociation that comes via trauma. People who have been severely traumatized can dissociate completely to escape the trauma. This happens quite frequently with children who are abused or with people who have suffered some kind of traumatic injury. They learn to dissociate, to become absent from themselves because being immediately present, being focused on the immediate environment, on your immediate bodily sensations, uh, is just too painful or too traumatic. The problem is, as Martha Stout points out, that when a person dissociates, they are exercising a fairly natural function of the mind in such a way that each time they do it, it becomes easier and easier to do it. And in fact, in some cases, it becomes habitual. Many people live most of their lives in a state of dissociation. They are only present in themselves and really aware of themselves and aware of their immediate environment occasionally. This can be a problem. Now, for example, uh, a child who dissociates due to trauma or abuse when they're very young may find that it is more pleasant because their real life is too painful for some reason, and so they begin to dissociate habitually. This can be very problematic because they live their entire lives in another state of consciousness, or they live most of their childhood in a a different state of consciousness. And when they grow up, they have no memory of having lived through their childhood at all. 
because it's it belongs to some other state of consciousness that is not in their conscious state of awareness. Now, when I learned about dissociation, I didn't really realize that there were people who simply could not remember their childhood. For example, I remember uh, I have a have a continuous stream of memory back to when I was an infant sitting in a high chair and being fed. I was actually too young to hold a spoon and feed myself. But I have conscious memory of of sitting in a high chair and being fed. I can remember the room, the people in the room, uh, who was feeding me, uh, many details. And through throughout my childhood, there's a fairly continuous stream of memory. So for me, it was very difficult to understand how somebody could not have a, a stream of memory back to infancy. And yet... There are people who do not. If you ask them, you know, what do you remember your fifth birthday or uh, what were you doing when you were five or where did you live when you were five or related questions, they simply do not remember. And that that struck me as being very, uh, well, in a sense, sad because it's like being robbed of part of your life. But, of course, if that part of your life is very unpleasant, as it is for most people who do this, then maybe it's not so bad at all. Now, having talked a little bit about dissociation, let me just say that when it comes to channeling, I think that most channeling is done in a state of dissociation, which means that somebody is not present in themselves. And from my point of view, that's not healthy. To not be fully in yourself at every moment is simply not healthy. It's it's disabling. And by definition, you know, trans-channeling or any kind of channeling where the individual is no longer present in themselves, you know, totally present in themselves, is something of a violation. It's a violation of the, of their sovereign being. And so as I was dealing with these different clients and different people with different problems. I was reading all of this material and and observing the clients, observing the people, uh, listening to their situations, and also absorbing an enormous amount of material, of, of channeled information, historical information, uh, just literally hundreds and thousands of volumes of information to help me understand exactly what was happening with the clients, with the world itself, you know, with my own thoughts as I was observing these things. And these conclusions, you know, gradually formed in me throughout this period so that little by little certain ideas began to emerge in my mind. Now let me go off to the side here and talk about some of the technical processes of spirit release therapy. One of the first things I do when I have an individual who has come to me for hypnotherapy is, is uh, you know, first of all, I, I interview them extensively to try to find out any problem areas in their lives. You know, if, if they, they may say, I'm coming to you because um, uh, I have low self-esteem and I would like to have, you know, more self-esteem and be more assertive because I, I'm a doormat or whatever. I want to know as much about that person as I possibly can because certainly there is a reason for that low self-esteem and I would like to be able to find out if it's more than just 
something minor and if possibly they do need to you know to to go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist rather than just getting you know what what could be called a quick fix with hypnotherapy so after i have this interview then uh, we arrange for the session and the individual is instructed to get very comfortable one of the things about getting very comfortable is that you have to make sure that that all of your limbs are in in particular positions and that you're you know either warmly dressed or you have a cover over you because even if you think that you're warm and even if you think that this is the way you normally sit to make yourself comfortable what is comfortable under hypnosis and what is comfortable otherwise are two entirely different things so I get the person comfortable and explain to them how to uh, how to arrange their body so that they won't be distracted by by discomfort or by being cold. And then I begin the induction. Once the induction has been accomplished, I then instruct the individual to create a safe place in which to work. This is a little bit of an involved process, so I'm not going to go through it entirely. But once they have this uh, the safe environment, it's, it's an internal uh, construct, and they more or less build it from their own, from their own being, from the things that are inside them, from their nature. And once they are in this safe environment, then we begin the process of of trying to identify, you know, exactly what's going on. Now, the process of of spirit release therapy uh, relies heavily on something called a differential diagnosis. Now, a differential diagnosis is accomplished by asking a series of questions. And the questions start out with, for example, um, you know, once you have established that there is something there other than the individual, and whether or not that is a dissociated part of the individual, an attached entity, a past life memory, uh, you know, I, I'm going to leave completely undecided because I can't know, I don't know, and I don't think anybody else knows. I only know that the various processes work, whether whether you're working with past life therapy or spirit release therapy, there are a series of questions that you can ask that uh, that establish that something is or is not a part of the direct self-awareness of the uh, alleged occupant of the body. And here I'm not even going to go into discussing multiple personality because that's another another issue altogether. Although it is very much related to dissociation, uh, it would take us too far afield to try to go into that right now. But in any event, once you start doing the differential diagnosis, you ask a series of questions. Uh, the first thing is, is you may ask this alleged dissociated part, whether it's you know, a past life memory, whether it's a, an attached entity, as I said, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to say for certain. I'm only going to say that the process follows a certain course. Even that point where there's an ability on the, on the person who is conducting the session, whether it be uh, hypnotherapy in terms of past life regression or spirit release, or if it's channeling, if someone is dissociated, let's say, when they're channeling, uh, where they're lying essentially comatose or in another state of awareness and unable to interact with with the process obviously in that state they cannot involve themselves directly in asking questions and in deciphering and in looking at the information that's coming through and deciding to to move in a different direction or to do anything they simply are as you've kind of suggested at the, at the mercy of whatever entity 
let's call it, uh, is, is, is being channeled. When you're dissociated, you're no longer on guard. You're, you're, you're as, as vulnerable as if you are asleep. You know, that, that strikes me as, you know, not a very benevolent exchange so that if a person is required to give up their self-awareness in order, you know, as an exchange with some alleged higher being, you know, who wants to use them and talk through them, that alleged being cannot be, by definition, benevolent because that being is, is making that individual vulnerable. Now, the argument may be made that that the benevolent being is going to take over their voice or their uh, you know their their physical structure for a period of time in order to speak through them, and that the benevolent being will watch out for them while this is happening. But still, they're being asked to you know to give up themselves. So the problem is, is you begin to ask a series of questions. One of the first questions you might ask is uh, uh, of this alleged entity is, have you ever had a body of your own other than the body in which you know you are now? located. So this is your first question. Now, the entity, and of course you're asking these questions through the individual. You ask the individual who was there, you ask them to ask this question of the entity and report back to you the answer. Very often, as you go through this process, the alleged entity will essentially take over the body of the client and will begin answering directly without benefit of the intermediary. So, for example, I would say to my client, Mary, uh, Mary, can you ask the entity, and I'm not even, I'm, like I said, I'm not going to talk about how you identify from the beginning that there is something there, but once you have identified that there is something there that's an aberrant energy construct, then you ask the client, you know, ask the entity, have you ever had a body of your own other than the body of Mary? And uh, Mary will then be silent for a moment or two, and while she's mentally asking the entity this question, sometimes they ask it out loud, it, it, it varies. And the answer comes back, yes or no. Well, just because the answer is no doesn't necessarily mean that it's not an entity of some sort. Because there are uh, apparently entities that do not incarnate into physical bodies. They, you know, forever are half-formed or misbegotten, <laughs> if you want to use a kind of a pejorative term. But they don't have sufficient energy to, to hold, occupy, or operate uh, a physical body. So they have never incarnated. And yet they are a certain sort of consciousness that floats around and attaches here and there. So you either get the answer yes or no. If it's no, uh, that the entity has never had a body of its own, then you go another direction. You begin to try to find out if it's just a, an energy construct, if it's a dissociated part of Mary that formed during a traumatic event in her past, or if it is actually one of these so-called misbegotten entities that never form sufficiently to be able to manage a body, and you continue on in that direction. If the answer is yes, then you go along a different way. So in other words, asking this question is bringing you to a fork in the road. It's either yes or no, and depending upon which fork you take, you know, a whole other series of questions must be asked. Now suppose the entity says yes, 
I had a body of my own. Then the next question you would want to ask is, when did you occupy that body last? You know, in other words, when did that body die? And of course, you can't even assume that that body died because they may have left and left the body alive. You know, it may, may be on a life support system in a hospital somewhere. So you ask, when, when were they in that body last? And reach another fork, the answer will be either, you know, a date or whatever. And then you ask the next question, you know, why did you leave? And then the answer obviously is going to be, you know, because because I died or because the body died or some other answer and you continue on this way until you establish you know where when and how this entity came to be with Mary and we've talked about this a little bit in a previous uh, discussion when I explained about individuals who had attached entities that would you know frequency lock on some part of their body because there was a, a frequency that was similar to their own at the time of death so having been through this process of differential diagnosis hundreds of times, it occurred to me that this is a very useful process to use if someone wanted to, say, for example, experiment with channeling. Because I was reading all of these books at the same time that I was doing this work, and many of them were alleged to be channeled material, and I have an entire bookcase full of them where an entity would come along and suddenly begin to speak through the through the uh, vocal organs of this person or that person, or they would go into a trance and, and their spirit guides would take over and start talking, or, um, you know, they would start out with automatic writing and then they would graduate from automatic writing to voice channeling, or they would start off with a Ouija board or something and then they would graduate to voice channeling or direct channeling or whatever. They'd go into trances. Any numbers of things would happen, and the thing that I saw that was not happening was nobody was doing a differential diagnosis, ever. Mm-hmm. Something just came along and hopped up on the soapbox of somebody's psyche and started pontificating, and it was and it was channeling. Well, of course, I mean, when such a thing happens, people are so overwhelmed or, t- or taken away with the whole phenomenon of it that they're not really going to be in a position, or generally they're not in a position to, to be critical about it or to be objective about it. They're just going to be, wow, there's a wow factor, and they're just going to let it happen. Oh, yeah, there's something talking through me, and it's not me, and it knows more than I know, and wow, isn't that far out, and isn't that cool? And, I... and it must be. It must be better than me. It must know more than me. It must be yeah. an evolved, a superior being. I right? mean, it's Lord Sananda, it's Jesus Christ, it's Yahweh, you know, who yeah. knows? It's... Especially the names, you know. Once you get the names, then you're, yeah. you're Lord Sananda. Who's going to question Lord Sananda, you know? Yeah. So there I was looking at this, and the thought was forming in my mind that nobody was questioning this kind of activity. Nobody was doing a differential diagnosis. And then, of course, the problem was that if you're going to do a differential diagnosis, who's going to do it? I mean, am I going to find somebody who's willing to spend most of their life unconscious while I do, you know, endless differential diagnoses with endless numbers of entities who come and go you know, one comes along and they say, oh, no, you're not good enough, toss you out. Next. You know, Yeah, next, a next applicant, you know, that's, that's, not a very, um, <laughs> that's not a very profitable activity for somebody. So then the next question that, that came up was, how can a person go about doing this with themselves? In other words, to be 
always, constantly, fully present in yourself, absolutely no dissociation, and to be able to contact that level of consciousness simultaneously and do your own differential diagnosis. Well, of course, I was uh, asking some questions that uh, I don't think anybody else has really asked. So the next thing that occurred to me as I was doing these uh, spirit release therapy sessions and past life therapy sessions was the extraordinary similarity of the symbology, the imagery. Uh, For example, uh, in the process of doing a differential diagnosis, you would ask the client to describe the appearance of these aberrant energy forms. Now, these questions are asked in a completely open way. The person has not had any instruction. No, they've not read any books about any of this kind of therapy. They don't have any, any idea what it is they're supposed to be answering. They have no preformed or preset opinions about it. Most of them had no idea whatsoever what kind of, of an experimental process I was undertaking. So in, they were completely uncontaminated subjects. And yet, again and again, when I would ask these questions, they were coming up with the same kind of Im- images. For example, I would ask a woman, um, do you see an energy that is not part of of your natural psychic frequency pattern or your vibrational pattern and they would say yes and I'd say is it located in any particular part of your body well yes where is it located in my heart what does it look like and the answer would come back it looks like a green candle well a green candle is an interesting image but the thing is is that I had more than one person who had green candles And it seemed that green candles in the area of the heart represented jealousy. Then there were things like people would see uh, images of these energy patterns and they would say, well, it looks like a bracelet, a silver bracelet, or it looks like a crown on my head and it it makes, it's got pressure on me. It it contains my thoughts. And you would find out that this was a uh, particular energy that was, uh, formed from a dissociative period when when the individual was a child, it had nothing to do with an entity. It had nothing to do with you know a, an attachment or a past life. It had simply to do with a dissociated state when the individual was a child, and they would dissociate and imagine themselves wearing a crown, and the crown would contain all of their brains in their head because they felt like they were so upset that they were, you know that their brains were going to spill out, and so this habit of dissociation would lead them to build energy into this crown on their head. And so whenever they you know, felt the least bit stressed out, they would go into this dissociated state and they would have this crown on their head, which gradually grew bigger and bigger and began pressing on them because it was interfering with their lives, because they were going into the dissociated state more and more often and spending less and less time in full conscious awareness. So it, uh, it grew and, and they didn't. So there were all kinds of these symbolic type images that people were talking about and it struck me that there is some place, there is some reality where these images exist. And of course I thought about uh, Carl Jung and his theory of archetypes and, and the collective unconscious 
So naturally, I, I wondered if there is any way to go to or, or communicate directly with this collective unconscious. Then, after another period of time, I began to wonder if this so-called collective unconscious, this realm of, of these archetypal images, might not be a, shall we say, a cloud or a, or a veil itself that it was a veil between our reality and some other reality where thought was even more pure, where jealousy was no longer represented by a green candle because, of course, a green candle is a representation of something that is in this material world, whereas jealousy is is an abstract concept. So I, I began to think of this realm of archetypes as something like a film through which a light is projected into our reality and somewhere at some point, you know, it congeals and and our world becomes, you know, real and solid as we experience it. So I wanted to formulate a way to get through this cloud, this veil, to penetrate or pierce the veil and and approach the realm of pure ideas, of pure thought. And those were the ideas that were in my mind when I began to really seriously consider undertaking a channeling experiment. Because, I mean, think about it. I mean, with all the hundreds and hundreds of books out there of channeled material covering, you know, every subject under the sun, sometimes ten times over, why in the world would anybody want to come along and undertake a channeling experiment, which they knew was going to involve a lot of time and effort if they could just, you know, go down to the local bookstore and buy the latest channel book and get the information that they need. You know, that's kind of, you know, why reinvent the wheel? Other people were channeling, and that was the problem because as I read all of these channel books, it just, for one thing, it didn't reflect reality. They would talk about a world that was so unreal about ideas that were so unreal and so disconnected from this reality that it was impossible to to believe that these were higher beings because certainly if they were higher beings, they should have greater knowledge than we do, which means that they should have knowledge of us and the difficulties that we as human beings face, but they they didn't seem to have this. Oh, oh, they would would say, oh, well, if you just think nice thoughts and and, uh, you know, do impossible feats of being good under the most incredibly difficult and trying of circumstances, and everything will be all right. It wasn't really much different from standard organized religion. Just have faith, just do this, this, and this, you know, follow these, uh, follow these rules, and then when you're dead, when you come over to this other side, everything will be fine then. You know, yeah, I'm sorry that your life is so screwed up, you know, where you are. There's nothing we can do about that. Don't worry about it. You know, just turn your mind to this higher world and everything, when you're dead, will be fine. Well, you ask the question, why would anybody kind of want to reinvent the wheel in terms of uh, asking these questions or, or engaging uh, themselves in some kind of a channeling experiment or uh, when there's all of this literature that's out there already available, uh, mm-hmm. but it seems to me that all of the questioning that you that you did uh, and your experience with hypnotherapy and of past life regression and, and spirit release techniques furnished you with the information or the knowledge that it's not a simple matter. That there are many different, there can be many different origins of of, mm-hmm. of what people think or uh, believe to be entities, 
uh, as you've just described. So, I mean, that's a very good reason for someone uh, with that information to want to, to want to find out for themselves and undertake their own um, experiment with all of this awareness of, of the possible pitfalls or the uh, traps. It strikes me as uh, a good analogy would be, well, why would I want to go to Iraq when I can just pick up the Washington Post or the, or, or the New York Times because, you know, it's right, it, it's right there, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, well, once I'm aware that the, that the mainstream media is not exactly uh, truthful all the time, well, then that's a very good reason for me wanted to, to want to do it myself and find out myself. Yeah, and going to Iraq is really not a bad analogy because because <laughs> investigating such things uh, can be problematical at best. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of people are just after the experience. They want to have, you know, a, an experience. They want a phenomenon. They want something that is just, you know, really extraordinary. Um, experience junkies. Mm-hmm. But what I was reading in terms of channel material, you know, wasn't wasn't really so hot. And then, of course, there were many of the things that I'd read from the from the old AS, you know, Association or the Society of Psychical Research, the SBR, in the UK that indicated that their, you know, life after death wasn't all sweetness and light and, and honey and roses. But there was, you know, those things weren't being played up. People were, you know, just putting on their, their, their pointed hats and channeling away and and accepting every word that came down the pike from any spirit that came along and said, hi, I'm your best friend, I'm your spirit guide, I want to talk through you, and you know we're going to make millions selling channeling books. So that was, you know, I, I, I had a pretty skeptical attitude about uh, what was passing as channeling. And certainly, you know, at least the, the scientific skepticism that had guided uh, organizations such as the SPR and and even mediums like Eileen Garrett uh, had been lost. People had become so so enthralled with this process that they had lost any sense of, of proportion whatsoever. And they weren't asking the right questions, and, and they were just taking everything at face value. So these were the ideas that were, were taking shape over this period of, 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 what, 25, 30 years before I decided to actually... Uh, you know, formulate an experimental protocol and and begin the process of of trying to do it. Well, naturally, I decided using a board-type object uh, for a number of reasons, the main one being that when you're using a board, you are fully conscious. And, of course, staying fully conscious and fully aware at all times was part of the experimental protocol. Because it wasn't going to do anybody any good if people sat down and put their fingers on this little, you know, this little planchette that slides around on the board and and started going off into trances. That was verboten. And if anybody gave any indications that they were, you know, going off, then like falling face down on the table or something, (laughs) (laughs) then you know the experiment was terminated at that moment. So. I also knew that I was going to have to do differential diagnosis, and I was going to have to do it repeatedly over and over and over again because I was going to have to deal with you know, any loops that existed in my subconscious as well as in the subconsciouses of, of the other participants of the experiment. So that's a pretty tall order you know, to, to run out all the, the loops in your own mind, the loops in the minds of the people who are participating, you know, people who are sitting in the room, because, of course, that, that can all be picked up. 
and uh, run out all of the past life loops and, uh, you know, any floating entity loops and so forth and, and differential diagnosis every single dadgum one of them over and over and over and over again. And this is what we did for two years, differential diagnosis. One after the other after the other, endless, endless, endless. It, it became almost formulaic, and we actually got to the point where we could tell after just a few words, you know, if, if, the, if the loop, the entity, or whatever it was that we were uh, encountering at that particular moment, you know, should be indulged a little longer, or should we just, you know, terminate that contact immediately. So the majority of the entities, let's call them during that two-year period, you're saying that you, you you've discovered that they were just what as you call as you call them dead dudes, and that they had there was no difference between really any of them that then, and there was nothing really any of them could could offer. Well, that's pretty much it. I have a whole box full of notebooks that record all of these exchanges for a couple of years, and. There, you know, some of them were interesting, some were entertaining, some were funny, and some were terribly, terribly tragic. And I'll give you just, uh, you know, a few examples. Uh, you know, you start out first of all, and you ask, "Is anybody there?" And the answer is yes or no, or there's no answer, or whatever. But anyhow, eventually, there you get some movement, and then finally, it may, depending on the energy, and of course, you're 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 fully aware, fully alert, and you're sensing and feeling this energy. What does it feel like, you know? And you're constantly observing yourself, observing your bodily reactions, observing your your mental and emotional reactions to the energy. So the answer will be yes, and you'll say, uh, "Do you have a name?" And the answer is yes or no. Uh, what's your name? And then you get a name or something. Uh, and in one case, it was uh, something like, you know, Sally. Well, Sally, uh, did you ever have a body of, you know, a physical body? Uh, yes. Uh, what happened, you know, when, when were you last in that body? And get an answer like, I don't know. And he's, well, why don't you know? And... And then you get the answer spelled back to you, I want my mommy. And I say, who's your mommy? And, and, and my mommy's dead. You know, how did your mommy die? And, and, and you know, you go on through this, this discussion with this spirit or this entity. And after a little bit of back and forth, you understand that it's a child, you know, who was, who was killed in an accident along with the mother. And the mother, uh, supposedly, according to the theory, went into the light and the child didn't and got lost and is wandering around looking for its mommy. And you then gently explain to the child, well, you know, mommy, you know, mommy has gone into the light. Do you see the light? And, well, yes, I see the light. Well, I'm, why don't you go to the light? Well, I'm afraid. And then you explain to the entity, well, your, your mommy's in the light. If you just go to the light, you'll find your mommy. And then you ask, well, are you willing to do that? And, and yes, I want to I want to be with my mommy. And then you say, well, go see your mommy. And then after a few minutes, you say, is anybody there? And then there's no answer. And then a few more minutes go by, and you ask again, is anybody there? And somebody else comes along and says, yes. And you say, um, do you you know do you have a name? And you say, yes, my name's Jack. And, and uh, Jack, what happened to Sally? Well, Sally went into the light. I was waiting my turn. So these are the these are the kinds of of dialogues that we were having, uh, hour after hour, you know, once a week, every week for two years. 
Well, it would seem to me that uh, just thinking about it, that that um, differential, engaging in that differential diagnosis as you describe it, would be crucial to anybody, uh, for anybody who, who's planning or thinking about engaging in any kind of channel, channeling because, as you're describing, if you don't ask the question, these kind of questions, I mean, how are you to know that it isn't either coming from some part of uh, someone in the room beside you mm-hmm. or an entity that's standing behind you in the room sure. or coming from your dog, for example, you know? If you didn't ask these questions, how do you know you're not channeling your dog? If you just simply get <laughs> get something that comes straight through and says, hello, and then you say, okay, tell us some stuff, and you... You know, I mean, it That's strikes exactly me. The point. It strikes me that it's, it's a much more scientific way to approach the uh, to approach the subject, whereas the other way, uh, which involves more just blind belief that if something comes through, it has to be you know superior or superior intelligence. That's more like a religious uh, mm-hmm. way of doing it, you know. Um, because obviously the scientific approach is to is to question and to refine and to test theories and to until you can well right up into the uh, to, to the limit, you know. Well, of course, and, and you have to keep in mind also that even while we were going through this process, that there was no belief involved. We were using the you know the spirit release therapy protocol via a uh, via a board type instrument with two or more people involved. So that there was, you know, no possibility of any single person's subconscious mind, you know, controlling or directing the activity. And everybody was, you know, being very sincere in in their attempts to not uh, lead or direct or in any way influence the outcome. So we were having these extremely entertaining and, as I said, sometimes sad dialogues with, you know, with what we would call dead dudes, but we didn't necessarily believe we were using the protocol. We were using it as a working hypothesis, and we were not making any judgments about, you know, the, the, the truth or the validity of, you know, reincarnation of dead dudes or so forth at that point. We were just simply working with the technique. And it... Uh, it was extremely, extremely educational because there was, it, it was like having little mini conversations with, you know, thousands of different individuals and each individual was, uh, was uniquely individualistic um, and that was, you know, part of the information that we were gathering which suggested that very likely we were communicating with individual entities because of, uh, because the fact that there were just so many uh, distinct characters that came along and came through uh, there were there was one that uh, I remember in particular who who must have been an old hippie because he was just saying oh love is the answer groovy you know? <laughs> <laughs> and everything you ask him, he says, "Oh, don't worry about a thing. It's groovy Shut here." Up, man. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, it was it was uh, it was quite quite entertaining. So that was uh, pretty much uh, pretty much the process. But as I said, there were endless variations. There were guys that came along, or entities that came along that you know identified themselves as aliens or space brothers or. You know, I'm, I'm talking to you from the planet Aquila and the constellation, blah blah blah, and and uh, would start delivering a whole load of nonsense, and and uh, you know, and 
at that point, when you start uh, dealing with that type of entity, then it's a little bit more challenging because no longer are you dealing with you know little lost you know little lost girls or dead hippies. You're you're dealing with something quite different that is a little bit more cunning and clever. And of course, when we reached that stage, I, I realized that we were we'd moved up a few levels. So then we had to begin to be a little more clever in our questioning. And uh, those kinds of questions were a little more involved, but we proceeded and, and continued and persisted until the eventful day when the when the Cassiopeian transmissions began. And that was the day that the Cassiopeian experiment uh, began in earnest. Yes, that's that's the day it began, and all of those details are discussed thoroughly on my website, www.cassiopeia.org, and Cassiopeia is spelled C-A-S-S-I-O-P-A-E-A, which is the way the Cassiopeians themselves spell it, interestingly. So if you want to know the details of what resulted after two years of differential diagnosis, (laughs) uh, tedious and exhausting though it may have been, uh, it was necessary and it was definitely worth it.